All right, we have been studying uh, Matthew's Gospel. We've been working our way uh, through the middle of it. Last week we were in chapter 15, and uh, today we're going to take a look at chapter 16. And uh, Jesus has a little run-in with those Pharisees again, Matthew 16, 1 through 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. We've heard you're a miracle man, do us a sign. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. That's our key that we're going to focus in on. Interpreting the signs of the times. Then he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In other words, you're asking me to do another miracle, but you're really not going to believe. You just want to be entertained. You just want uh, to see something supernatural. So I'm not going to perform a sign for you, but no sign will be given to it, except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. You go, what's the sign of Jonah? Well, from the other Gospels, we learn that the sign of Jonah is this. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. In other words, I'm not going to perform on demand for you, but I will do this. I will die and rise from the dead. Okay? Now, here's what I want you to see here. He expected them, these people who claimed to be uh, the spiritual leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, they were the Bible scholars, the Sadducees, they were the more liberal group. Uh, they were in political power and they were uh, in charge of the priesthood. Uh, but they all claimed to be the spiritual authorities and they loved their power. He says, you know what? You can read the weather. You can read the signs of the times with the weather but you don't have a clue that the Messiah is in your midst. You're missing the signs that God has given to point to you to the fact that the, uh, the Messiah has arrived. Now, here's what I want to do today. I want us to look at five signs that they should have been aware of that pointed to the fact that the Messiah was in their midst. And then next week, and I don't know how long I'm going to go on this. You know, I can go pretty long in a series. Um, I want to ask us... What are the signs of the times today that we should be aware of spiritually to give us a picture of where we are in the history of redemption? All right? So today we want to look at the signs of the times that they should have been aware of. Next week, what should we be aware of, the signs of the times? Okay? Now you say, well, how is this going to help us today? Well, uh, again, people, people say, how do we know that Jesus really is the guy to follow? Especially, I mean, I am seeing more and more these bumper stickers, these coexist bumper stickers. If you've got the cross and you've got the Islam symbol and you've got uh, all these different world religions, and the point is, can't we all just get along, just pick a religion and get along? How do we know that Christ is the true Messiah? Well, uh, we're going to look at these signs that point to him being the true Messiah. So this is good for apologetics, too. Right? So, five signs. Now, the first one, I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel. 
Daniel, now remember the story of Daniel. Israel uh, had been uh, apostate and falling into uh, worshiping idols and so forth. So God said, I'm going to allow a superpower to come in and devastate you. So Babylon came in and demolished Jerusalem and carried captives back to Babylon. One of those captives was named Daniel. He was uh, captured at a, uh, when he was a teen, and the king could see that he was a very bright young man, and he was trained in Babylonian wisdom, and he was in charge, eventually, of the wise men. You know those wise men who come to visit Jesus? Well, um, he was amongst those people and eventually rose to be the leader of the wise men. And here's how it happened. One day the king had a dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, and it disturbed him. So he called in all the wise men, including Daniel, and he said, I had this dream, now interpret it for me. So all the wise men say, okay, we'll interpret it for you. Tell us the dream. And he goes, you're stalling. And he, they go, well, come on, tell us the dream. I mean, we need to, to hear the dream to interpret it. And he goes, no, I'm not going to tell you the dream. If you were really wise men, you could tell me the interpretation without me even telling you the dream. And if you don't get it right, I'm going to kill you. So they're trembling. And um, Daniel says, all right, I've got it. Because God gave him not only the dream but the interpretation. Now, he had a dream of a statue. Right? And here is Daniel telling him the dream. He said, the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff in the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that was your dream. You dreamed of a big statue. It had a gold head, silver chest, bronze waist, and iron legs and feet. And a big stone smashes the feet. And it demolishes it, and then the stone fills the earth. Uh, there's actually a park where they've, uh, this is uh, actually in Salt Lake City, so I'm assuming it's a Mormon park. Um, but there's the statue with the feet and the arms and so forth. And then there's this huge stone that is representative of the stone that smashed it. Okay? Now you go, well, what, what in the world does it mean? Well, Daniel goes on to give the meaning. He says, you... King Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. You, the Babylonian empire, you're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And we know that the next kingdom was the Medo-Persian empire. Uh, That's the second kingdom. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, that was Alexander the Great in the Greek empire. And he conquered the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom Strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. The fourth kingdom is Rome. And then it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. So in comes the kingdom of God, Christ, 
smashing the feet, and it all goes to pieces, and then uh, the kingdom of God takes over. Now, the debate uh, is this. Is this depicting the first coming of Christ, when the, when the rock hits, or the second coming of Christ? Um, because the rock hits and dramatically shatters uh, the statue, those who say, well, this, the, so, some would say this has to be the second coming of Christ, because when he came the first time, he didn't topple all the world empires. He came and he died on the cross, but when he comes back a second time, that's when he will dramatically demolish the world uh, empires. Right? So they say there has to be a revived Roman Empire, and those who follow prophecy say, well, Europe will revive again in the end times, and Christ will return dramatically and smash it. Uh, others say, no, no, follow the picture. During the time of the Roman Empire, Christ did come and demolish the world empires, but he came gradually, and he's gradually spreading the gospel throughout the earth. So this reflects the time of his first coming. Now, you can argue back and forth, back and forth, which interpretation you want. Bottom line, the Pharisees had the book of Daniel. They knew they weren't in the Babylonian Empire. They knew they weren't in the Medo-Persian Empire. They knew they weren't in the Greek Empire. They knew they were under Rome. And every day they saw Roman soldiers walking up and down the streets of Jerusalem. They should have known that during the Roman Empire, something big was happening. All right? So that's, that's sign of the time number one. They were just simply in the Roman Empire. All right? But it gets even more specific than that. Let's go from Daniel 2 to Daniel 9. Okay, Daniel chapter 9. Now, uh, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is aware that they're supposed to be in captivity for 70 years. So he prays to God for more specific detail of when they are going to be able to go back to Jerusalem. And God sends Daniel an angel, the angel Gabriel, who's the messenger angel. And um, Gabriel gives Daniel some very cryptic information about the future. All right, and starting in Daniel 9:24, uh, here's what the angel Gabriel says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now, um, 70 weeks, it's, uh, technically it's 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now, if you crunch this out and you actually do it with weeks and days, it doesn't amount to anything. Uh, but virtually every scholar says what this is referring to is 70 weeks, 70 chunks of seven years. Right? 70 times seven years. 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city. Now, uh, depending where you start, you, you, you go from a certain starting point, you go 490 years, it takes you right to the time of Christ, 490 years-ish, okay? Now, um, here's another debate. The question is, is this prophecy, does it end with the first coming of Christ? And there are those who say, if you crunch out the numbers, 
it takes you exactly to the first coming of Christ, and it's totally fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. There are others who say, no, the first 69 weeks of years takes you to the first coming of Christ. Then God puts everything on hold, and that last seven years is yet to take place in the future. And uh, they would say the whole book of Revelation is based on the foundation of Daniel's 70th week, his seven, the seven-year t- uh, time period where God, uh, he, he was working with Israel, now he's working with the Gentiles, then he'll work with Israel again primarily. Okay. Now, um, I don't want to get too complicated when it, when it gets into this, but the, part of the question, how do we know if this is referring to the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ, has to do with what, what's going to happen during this time. Uh, it says these things are going to happen. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, to bring, an everlast- to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy pr- a place, or to anoint a, uh, a holy one, uh, or a holy, uh, the holy one. Okay? Now, here is, uh, here's a chart with all those six things. This would argue, this first column would argue for the first coming of Christ, the second one would argue for the second coming of Christ, that the, the first 69 years takes us to his first coming, then everything's put on pause, and then the last seven years refers to his second coming. Um, the, the, big, the, the big two are these two here in the middle. To atone for iniquity. Those who say this is referring to his first coming say, well, where, where was iniquity atoned for? On the cross. Done. Well, those who believe this is referring to his second coming would say, well, yes, the cross was done at his first coming, but Israel uh, does not really accept what Christ has done until the end times when multitudes of Jews will believe in Christ. Therefore, uh, it finally happens. The cross, uh, what it accomplished, its atonement, is applied to Israel in the end times. Then uh, those who say... This is referring to the end times, point to this one, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Uh, Christ died on the cross, but everlasting righteousness was not brought in 2,000 years ago. That's still for the end times, and Israel will be done being apostate. They will become righteous. But those who argue that this took place when Christ came the first time, this is not talking about the world becoming righteous. It's talking about Christ's imputed righteousness, where he lived a perfect life and died on the cross, and everlasting righteousness was accomplished in the life of Christ. So the two sides go back and forth, back and forth, and argue, is this referring to the first coming or the second coming? Now, let me show you some timelines, okay? Um, Here, verse 25, it says, Know therefore, and understand, that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one. And by the way, anointed one is Messiah. So so there's going to be a word, a decree to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of Messiah, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. So seven times seven, 49 years. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with Squares in a moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And I'm not even going to read the rest. Now, two most common interpretations of this are that Artaxerxes, the Persian king, 
decreed that the temple should be rebuilt in 458 B.C. Seven times seven, all right, there's uh, seven weeks of seven years. Forty-nine years later, Jerusalem was rebuilt. You count 62 more weeks of seven, that's 434 years, that's the birth of Christ. That takes you to 26 A.D., many believe the beginning of of, uh, Christ's ministry, and then 33 A.D., that would be the last seven-year period. He is cut off in the middle, and uh, this, this argument would say that the timeline begins in 458 B.C., and it perfectly ends in the middle of the last seven, where Jesus is cut off, complete, done, fulfilled prophecy. Right? Others uh, would say, no, that's not the best date to start. Artaxerxes decreed the rebuilding of the temple that day, but he wrote some letters and gave them to Nehemiah, um, allowing the, the city to be rebuilt in 445 B.C. It was completed seven times seven, 49 years later. You go 62 more weeks, and it takes you to about 30 A.D., but you've got one leftover seven, and you stop the time clock, and that's the book of Revelation right there. Um, now, most of you are familiar with that view. That is what you hear on uh, dispensational preachers. And, and in fact, the dispensationalists are the ones who write all the books on prophecy, and they just assume that this is, uh, this is the one. So most of you are like, oh, yeah, Daniel's 70th week, that's the book of Revelation. Now, this could be right, but let me tell you something that you have to, to honestly deal with. If you crunch the numbers starting in 445, and you, and you do 69 weeks of years, it doesn't take you to 30 AD. It takes you to like 37 or 38 AD. And you go, how do, you, how, do you, how do they come up with this exactly lining up? Well, they use special years. 360 day years, because they use 30-day months. And if you recalculate everything with only 360-day years, it takes you right to this time of Christ, and you've got an extra week left over. Now, that may be, that may be what God wants us to do, but I just, I think in the, the name of full disclosure, if you, if you hold to this view, you need to admit that you are not using regular years. You are using prophetic Years Now, you go, boy, that's really complicated. I didn't bring my calculator to the sermon today. Um, here's what I want you to see. The Jews of Jesus' day, they didn't have calculators. They did have abacuses, though. They had math, right? And I'm sure they said, well, what decree? This is a possibility. This is a possibility. Maybe they had three or four other possibilities. But when you crunch out the numbers... However you look at it, right around 26 A.D. to 33 A.D., something big's going to happen. That's all I want you to see. I want you to see that the Old Testament scriptures say that in the time of the Roman Empire, something big's going to happen, and then something around 26 to 33 A.D., something big is going to happen. When did Jesus do his ministry? Right then! They missed it. They missed it. Now, you go, um, this is all great, but it's so highly technical. Did he really expect them to get that? Well, maybe, maybe. Give me something more tangible, all right? Let's give you a third sign. John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist. 
the last book, the last prophetic book of your Old Testament is the book of Malachi. The last chapter is chapter 4. Virtually the last verse, not the exactly the last verse, but right toward the end it says this. Behold, God says, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before something dramatic happens, God's going to first send Elijah, the prophet. Now, Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven fourteen, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is Elijah, who is to come. God sent Elijah, not reincarnated Elijah, but an Elijah-like prophet. His name was John the Baptist. Now, here's the question. How big a deal was John the Baptist? Was he just a kind of a minor figure that nobody knew about? No. Everybody knew John the Baptist was the prophet sent from God. In fact, here in Mark 1.5, it says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Everybody was going out. To hear, and, and by the way, he didn't go to Jerusalem. He stayed out in the country. He was out in Elburn, right? And people were willing, basically, to travel from Chicago out to Elburn, out to, uh, to hear John the Baptist and be baptized. And it, it wasn't, you didn't get on the train. It was an all-day event, okay? And bring a knapsack. But everybody knew that John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God. So they're waiting. John, are you the one that we're, that, that we're to, to look for? What does John say? And by the way, what, what, one more here. Jesus actually talks about John the Baptist in Matthew 21. The Pharisees want to trap him. And they say, Jesus, we have a question for you. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And um, it's a trick question because if Jesus says yes then he is siding with Rome, and they hated Rome, and they could say, ah, he's a, uh, he's a Caesar supporter, and it would turn the crowd against Jesus. If he said, don't pay your taxes, then they would report him to Rome, and they would arrest him. So Jesus can't answer the question. So he says, you know, before I answer that question, i got a question, question for you. Here's the question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Now look, they go, ooh. How are we going to answer this? Huddle! And they, all the Pharisees huddle up here. Okay, what should we answer? Um, and they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? So we can't say it was John the Baptist was really a prophet from God. But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they go back to Jesus and say, we're not giving an answer. He goes, oh, okay, I won't answer you either. <laughs> right? Gotcha. So Jesus is, is outsmarting the smartest people of the day. But notice this whole thing just assumes everybody knew John was a prophet. Now, as they're listening to John and they say, John, are you the guy to, to wait for? What does he say? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. 
Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I, I don't even, I, I'm not worth untying this guy's shoe. Well, who is it? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God didn't just send Jesus out of the blue with no credentials, with no time period that he was supposed to appear in. He didn't send him without an introduction. He sent an undeniable prophet named John the Baptist. Everybody knew John, and John says, Jesus is the Messiah. Pretty clear sign. The Pharisees missed it. You know, let me ask you this. Who are the John the Baptists today? Who do you listen to? What preachers do you trust? You know, there are a lot of people who don't want to hear John the Baptist type preachers. Kind of ruins their day. Who do you listen to? Who are the John the Baptist teachers today who preach righteousness? To such a blistering degree that people either get mad or they say, I'm undone. I need a savior to save me. I don't hear a whole lot out there. And if you're a person who says, I don't want to hear that stuff. It's not nice. It ruins my Sunday. Then you're no different than the Pharisees. Right? Who are the John the Baptists? It's an interesting question. I want to ask you during connection time. Who do you think today's John the Baptists are? Are you even aware of them? Because Jesus expects us to be aware of the John the Baptists and who they point to. The Pharisees didn't like John the Baptist or Jesus. They missed it. And Jesus says, you've missed another sign. You can't read the signs of the times. All right. Let me give you another Sign. Messianic miracles. Okay. Messianic miracles. Isaiah 35. Isaiah talks about a time when the Messiah would come and restore all things. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So blind will see, deaf will hear, lame will be healed. Now, speaking of John the Baptist, John points to Jesus. He says he's the Messiah. And I'm sure John, along with virtually everybody else, thought, all right, this is it. This is the stone that's going to crush the statue of Rome. Let's bring it in. Let's destroy Rome. Come on, Jesus will be like King David. Can't wait for this to happen. And what happens? John gets arrested, thrown in prison. He starts scratching his head. He starts to wonder, did I get the wrong guy? And he sends word to Jesus. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, are you the one who was, is to come or shall we look for another? Because things were not quite as dramatic as he thought they should be. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, 
and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. So all those things Isaiah talked about, I'm doing, he's saying. Oh, and to throw in just a few others, and the dead are raised up. He's raising the dead. Okay. And the poor have good news preached to them. Now, um, it still was confusing, though, because it sounded like the Messiah would come and set up the millennium. And this wasn't the millennium. It was a taste of the millennium. And John didn't understand, and most people didn't understand, that Jesus was going to do this in two parts. First, he would come and give us a taste of the millennium. Then he would come back a second time and, and uh, dramatically change the world. And John's a little bit confused. But in essence, Jesus is saying, yes, my healings, opening the eyes of the blind, letting people hear, raising them from the dead, yes, it confirms that I am the Messiah. Now, what did the, uh, the Jewish leaders do? They looked at Jesus' healings, and they said, he does them on Saturday. So he can't be a true man of God. He violates the Sabbath. (laughs) And they rejected him. Bunch of legalists. Bunch of petty legalists. Um, He raises Lazarus from the dead. And rather than... Rather than them saying, well, this guy must be of God, here's what happened. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our, our place and our nation. You know, we, we, can't, we can't stop this guy. He seems to be gathering a crowd. We, uh, that'll upset the Romans. And we don't want that, so what should we do? So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Kill him. Wow. Talk about blind. Now, one last, one last thing. Jesus exposed rotten religion. Yes, he came in the Roman Empire. He came in at exact time. He was heralded by John the Baptist. He performed messianic miracles. And the fifth sign is he came and he exposed rotten religion. You see, true prophets of God expose hypocrisy. True prophets of God aren't prophets of God because they can fill churches. Anybody can fill a church. Just because you can gather numbers doesn't mean you're a true prophet of God. What makes you a true prophet of God is you preach the righteous standard in such a blisteringly hot way that sinners say, how can I be saved? I'm a sinner. I need a savior. But self-righteous people do not like that. They're not only offended, but these guys were so offended they wanted to kill him. But another sign that Jesus was the Messiah is that he exposed rotten religion. And you know what? He took names. He named names. Sometimes I hear people say, can't, can't. Name names. 
Jesus actually called them by name, the Pharisees, and to their face, he exposed them in Matthew 23. Here's, what, here's how you tell a Pharisee, or a, here's how you tell a, a legalist. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. These are man-made rules, okay? And lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So, so what a legalist does is he makes up all these rules and then imposes them on other people. And then when they stagger under the weight of them, they snicker. Why? Well, um, if your getting to heaven depends on your self-righteousness, you have to shift the standard away from God, because his standard is perfect, and you have to lower it to humanity. So now it becomes a dog-eat-dog world of, I need to look better than you. And one way I can do that is come up with my list of legalistic things, impose them upon you. And when you stagger, it makes me feel good because I'm doing these things better than you. And Jesus exposes them. He says, I know what you're doing. Coming up with your petty list of legalisms, dumping them on people, and then standing back and feeling good about yourself. Spiritual bullies is what they were. So, you know, you might be a redneck if. You might be a... You might be a legalist if you have a perverse enjoyment when others struggle spiritually. You might be a legalist if you dump your rules on others and see them stagger and you go, ha, because it makes you feel good. Here's another thing he said about them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Again, we don't want to be judged by God's standard, so let's lower the standard to a human level. Well, now it's all about me competing against you. So you might be a legalist if you have an unhealthy preoccupation with what others might think of you. They were all about looking good. And he says... You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They were nitpickers, gnat pickers. Petty little things. Remember Jesus and his disciples were going through the grain field and they were eating the grain without first washing their hands according to the tradition of the elders. And they said, nah, you're not spiritual. You didn't wash your hands. Petty little legalistic rules. I wrote a poem. Don't drink, don't dance or chew or go with girls who do. Wear a dress but show no skin. You don't want to make others sin. Play no music with a beat and don't you dare move your feet. Read your Bible twice a day. At least an hour you better pray. All these rules I keep to the letter. I know you don't, so I feel better. (laughs) Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. By the way, if you want to put that to music, go ahead. All right. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, 
but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. If you have an unhealthy preoccupation with what others might think of you, so you spend all your time on the outside, but are oblivious to the corruption on the inside, you might be a Pharisee. Now, um, this sealed Jesus' fate. You know, when he rode into Jerusalem, it's very interesting if you study the last week of his life. He's going to get crucified. And I believe he does two things that, that put the nails in the coffin or the nails on the cross. One, he goes into the temple and he flips over the tables. I'm here. Boom. And he flips over the tables. Then he spends the week outsmarting the Pharisees. They try to trap him and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And he, he, he's outsmarting them every time. So they're so frustrated. Then, Matthew 23, he blasts their hypocrisy. They're so furious that they kill him. Right? They should have repented you can tell you're a, uh, a Pharisee if when a strong message comes to you, you get mad instead of repent. Right? They should have repented, but they get mad, showing their hypocrisy. So this, this final sign that Jesus is the Messiah, a prophet from God, he exposes corrupt religion, and they kill him. Now, let me end with this. By the way, he says this, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Right? He names names, and he says you're going to hell. Now, let me end with one Pharisee who did escape being sentenced to hell. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was part of this group. Self-righteous. And then he talks about a transformation that takes place. He says, but whatever gain I had, this is Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. What do you mean, whatever gain I had? Well, he, he lists prior to this all his, his uh, external righteousness. I'm a Pharisee and a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. He kept all the religious rules. And he says, according to legalistic righteousness, I was flawless. That used to be what I relished. Now, whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything, all of that, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, scubalon. That means a naughty word that begins with S. In order that I may gain Christ and be found. Now, look at this. Here's the gospel. I've given up my self-righteousness, my external righteousness, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's the gospel. We're all self-righteous Pharisees. We all think we're pretty good before God. 
until God's law comes and weighs us and shows us that, that, that we're just a bunch of external people. Inside there's corruption, there's lust. There's self-righteousness. There's com- competition, I'm better than you. And when God's word exposes that, we can do one of two things. We can shoot the messenger, or we can repent and say, I, I am a sinner. But how do I get this righteousness that I need to stand holy before God? And there's the good news. That's why Jesus came. He came to live a perfect life and die a death in your place. And all who will turn from their self-righteousness and trust in him and him alone are saved. Which is why the Pharisees were condemned to hell and the prostitutes and the tax collectors were entering the kingdom of heaven because they weren't trusting their own righteousness. They were trusting in Christ's righteousness. I hope you're trusting in Christ's righteousness. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Jesus, the signs were all there pointing to you, yet many missed it. And Lord, today there are many signs pointing to you. All of them saying, repent. Turn from your sin and self-righteousness. Turn to the Savior. And maybe you're here this morning, you've, uh, you've been trusting yourself, your own righteousness, and finally it's clicking. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a sinner. I'm not good enough. And that's why Jesus came. And I would just encourage you, cry out to him and say, save me. Save me. And if you truly do that, you trust in him. He gives you his righteousness. He covers you with his righteousness. And you're perfectly accepted in God's eyes. Jesus, thank you for the gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.